0: Welcome in. Late kick once again on the air. It is Sunday night. It is July 5th, the year of our Lord, 2020. Yes, we are here, friends, even on a vacation weekend, to bring you what you want, which is just a little bit more college football than you had when you woke up this morning. We are going to talk about underrated teams coast to coast. I can't tell you how many times we have been inundated just over the past week. It's like a coordinated effort. You guys want to talk about underrated teams. Well, some of you want to talk under- and overrated we're going to go down the underrated road tonight, and I've got, I got somebody on the West Coast. I got two West Coast teams. I got a team in the Midwest. Actually, we're going West Coast and Midwest, and you know we're going to talk a lot of SEC tonight because tonight we continue, as we started Thursday, our Mood Tracker series, and we're going to go to a lot of other conferences over the next couple of weeks. We just started closest to home down here. And we, as you saw the other night, all we are going to do is we're going to span basically the entire division there in the SEC East. And we're just taking the temperature, not of the fringe 10%, not of the pessimistic fringe 10%, but the 80%, normally silent 80%. And it kind of gives you a nice national flavor that you would normally only get if you were hyper-localized to that fan base. So we don't make you drive to Columbia or drive to Athens or drive to Knoxville. We're going to let you know what those fan bases are thinking right now. You can do with that information what you want to. And also, I've noticed, I've continued to notice this a little bit. Anytime someone's previewing Alabama, anytime someone's talking about Bama's chances of competing for a national championship this year, the detractors, people who don't think Bama can get it done, they go to defense. And there's a lot of merit behind that if you're going off what we saw last year. So we're gonna discuss that a little bit. And I've also got a really good Q&A that's taken us right down to South Florida. So let's get us started tonight. And let's start with uh, underrated teams. So I had an email, uh, like 10 of them actually, just in the last 48 hours. Some wanted this to be on the next Late Kick Extra podcast, but I said, you know what? Enough of you have emailed me about this. Let's just kick off the Sunday night show with this. Underrated teams... I want to start and I want to tell you our 595 rule because it has a lot to do with preseason predictions and it has a lot to do with how people formulate their thoughts, just your overall feelings on a season. It happens around this time of year, even in a COVID-19 year, it still happens this time of year. So think about how it works. You guys have been through this drill just like I have you end spring ball, in this case we didn't have spring ball, but in a normal year you end spring ball, and then next thing is preview magazine season. So you get preview magazines, and then the next thing is media day season. And so you watch the media days from all over the country, and then camp starts, but really nothing's happened. No snap has been taken, no rep has been executed in between Those two bookends, camp opens on the back end and the end of spring on the front end, but so much feels like it happens because so many different people start talking. I'm in that business, I'm certainly not hoping that ever dries up, but the 595 rule is this. This is largely an aggregation business, whether you realize it or not. Not just aggregation in terms of print or content, but aggregation in terms of thought. The 595 rule that I have spoken about for many years is this time of year, a lot of people get married to predictions. And they get married to predictions and they get married to preseason ideas because they hear an overwhelming majority of people whose opinions they value saying the same thing. And that leads you to believe that it must be true. There must be some validity to it. Not always. The 595 rule is really only about 5% of people in this industry have original thought. Only about 5% of people in this industry, like we like to fancy ourselves as part of that 5%, are really coming up with anything new. The 95%, either consciously or subconsciously, are just herd mentality, they're just following along. So don't be fooled, just cause a lot of people are saying the same thing, don't be fooled into thinking they must be right. Really all that's happened is a few people happened to say something, and then a lot of people started regurgitating what those people said, and if you're outside and you're none the wiser to what the difference is, it just looks like, oh, well this team's a preseason top 10, that means they gotta be legit, not always. And it's not always the case on the other coin, or the other side of the coin, when everyone thinks teams are gonna underachieve, everyone thinks teams are gonna be parked outside the top 25, not always. So let's go underrated teams, at least that I've identified this year for myself. Now, this is one I wanted to kick off with, but I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on it because I don't know where I fall on the Washington Huskies. I was listening to Barton and Bud do their podcast the other day, and they were talking about Washington. And it does seem like, as as they pointed out, it does seem like quite a few people have written Washington off. It seems like it's an Oregon, and or USC world on the west coast and not a lot of love to go around anywhere else. This guy, if you're watching the YouTube live version, that is Jimmy Lake, that is the new head coach at Washington but he's not new to the program, he's been there quite a while. They transitioned at least defensively, they chose a defensive coach but they transitioned the same way that Ohio State did with Ryan Day. They already had the replacement in house. So that automatically tells you There's not the overturning of every bench in the program the way you would normally have if you had a quote unquote new head coach. So I love Jimmy Lake, I love their defense, and I could have said that long before this year. That's a top 10 unit. The questions that you would obviously have there are replacing quarterback. Now a lot of people, I've seen a lot of folks questioning their running back depth. I don't worry about that all that much. I think they've got good depth. Remember, question marks aren't always weaknesses but offensively, how long does it take Washington to get up to speed? What's funny is they play a team that you would describe largely the same way when it comes to offense and how long it's going to take to get up to speed in week one, and that's Michigan. So, you know, if they beat Michigan in week one, all of a sudden, I think they're on everyone's radar. So let's just keep an eye on Michigan, but I wanted to dive in a little bit further here to Iowa State. Iowa State is plus I like to call people plus, neutral, or minus. Plus in these three categories, head coach, quarterback, and defense. They're plus in all three of those categories. And when you're parked in a conference, as they are in the Big 12, where at the very top there's a fair amount of transitioning happening, namely at the quarterback position with Oklahoma, everyone has confidence in Spencer Rattler, but there is transition going on nonetheless it at least makes you look at a program that you view as being well-coached and having some of the very important boxes checked. And here's what else is fun to think about. They're kind of off everyone's radar for the moment, whereas this time last year they were on everyone's radar cause they had a down year. Now think previous to Matt Campbell showing up, think about what a down year for Iowa State football would have been. Two and 10, three and nine? They went seven and six last year. Seven, an above 500 campaign is now considered a down year. To give you an idea of the overall quality and the elevation that's happening in Ames, Iowa of the overall stature of that program. So there's a lot to like here still. And I want you to also remember this. Now the Big 12, it's not set up in divisions. just the top two teams go to the Big 12 championship game. Think about what they could do. And all you gotta do is crack open a magazine and look at their preview and look at their schedule. Look at where they play Oklahoma. There are a couple of uh, landmine games out there. Now, this one's not going to be overlooked, certainly, but they've got Oklahoma in Ames, Iowa. They got him at home. Don't know how many people are going to be there, but they've got him at home the week after Oklahoma plays Texas and the week before Oklahoma plays Oklahoma State. So their Super Bowl could not fall in a better spot in terms of the old let down, look ahead spot. I don't know how much you buy into those scheduling dynamics, but let's keep an eye on Iowa State. Now that's not a team that's off everyone's radar totally. I'm sure some people will have them preseason top 25. I'm talking about contending for the Big 12 championship, to be clear. That's what I'm talking about them being a contender for. I don't hear many people saying that. Let's talk about the Cal Golden Bears. Let's go out to Berkeley. 2019, from a distance, what do they look like? From a distance, If you were paying attention, uh, hardcore, you saw eight and four. Eh, Eight and four, nothing to write home about, especially in a weaker conference. Eh, what, What is that good for? What are they, a fringe top 25 team? Yeah, I guess so. And then you zoom in closer, and again, those of you who are hardcore followers of the sport, you know they lost their quarterback, Chase Garbers, last year, and they lost him at the worst time imaginable because they lost him as the meat of their schedule approached. And so they had predictable results during that stretch, and then they got him back towards the end of the year. Also, the schedule lightened up a little bit, and you had to like how they finished last season, but they've got the core of that program built right. Like They've got a lot of good people coming back, but they've added a lot of good people. They've added a lot of elements, for instance, defensively, that they certainly didn't have before Justin Wilcox got there. I've always been partial to just the overall style of coach he is. So they're also in a conference out there. You talk about Washington not getting a whole lot of love. Well, after you talk about Oregon, after you talk about USC, how many people nationally are talking about Cal? So I'm looking at Cal, and I'm looking at a lot of the boxes that need to be checked. It's an experience year this year. Experience probably matters more than ever. I'm not one that's usually here parroting a bunch of returning starter numbers. But this year, I do care a little bit more about returning snaps. You call it returning starters. I want to know how many snaps you return. Cal returns a lot of snaps. They were the worst team in the Pac-12 in offensive points per game last year. The absolute worst nowhere to go but up. That's the way I look at Cal. So I like a lot about what I see from them. And then let's head to the Midwest and let's talk about Nebraska. Yeah. Do you remember this time last year? I remember talking to someone. I remember this vividly. Nebraska, Nebraska was recruiting in an area where I was very familiar with some of the high school coaches. And this is the time last year where A lot of people were fancying them, obviously as contenders in the Big 10 West. I think a number of people picked them to win the Big 10 West. Now, partly that was out of a shortage of qualified applicants, if you will. But a lot of people thought, hey, year two, Scott Frost, it's just gonna pop. And I remember them wishing they could pump the brakes on that stuff because they didn't think they were there. Like, internally, they didn't think they were there. I'm not telling you they're running around everywhere, often on the record now, predicting national championship year three for Nebraska, but I am telling you they feel a lot better about where they are this year. A lot of that has to do, obviously, with a healthy quarterback, hopefully in Adrian Martinez, but they've also got competition at that position. Whether he's healthy or not, that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Questions, again, are not always weaknesses, but I love picking any team to keep an eye on that the public was a year early on. See, cause the public, they get really salty when they predict something and then you don't fulfill their prediction. We've talked about this with Michigan before. It wasn't that they were wrong in their prediction, it was that you underachieved. Isn't that fun, how that works? It's like you're absolved of any wrongdoing no matter what, but you get all the credit if you're right. So in summary, a lot of folks tabbed Nebraska as a sleeper last year, they fall flat, Nebraska, it's your fault, it's not our fault, and now this year, we're not gonna pick you to do much of anything. So, I will look at them this year. And two other things that I want you to keep an eye on. They've recruited pretty well. You could argue they've had the best recruiting class in that division the last two to three years. You could argue that. It depends on which metrics you want to use. you could argue that. I would look at defensive back, some of the talent they've brought in that other big-time programs wanted over the last couple of years. I think you'll see some young kids on the field that contribute on the back end of their defense this year. And I also think they've got some skill talent in this last recruiting class, partly from the JUCO ranks and partly just true freshman guys that are going to be better options than the ones that they currently have. They had a notable transfer over the last couple of weeks. But I think that they'll be just fine there. That's the kind of deal where you look and you think there's this massive vacuum when you lose a big time, numerically at least, a big time talent, and then all of a sudden there's this young kid or young kids that come out of nowhere and you say, where did that kid at Nebraska come from? Pay attention to recruiting. Reason number 1,082 to pay attention to recruiting. So those are just some of the teams I'm looking at and also with Nebraska, before we move on here, I had a little asterisk here written down on the piece of paper. I remember in 2014, I was looking at Mississippi State and Mississippi State looked like a team that was going to be solid, but their schedule set up to where it was backloaded, severely backloaded. And so I went on radio and I said, I'm telling you right now, we're going to get to week whatever it was, week seven, week eight, Mississippi State is going to be ranked top 10. And you will look around and say, where in the world did Mississippi State come from? And sure enough, they were ranked number one. They weren't ranked top 10, they were ranked number one. Now Nebraska has got a similarly backloaded schedule this year, it reminds me of that 2014 Mississippi State crew. Now when I say it's backloaded, I mean it is severely backloaded. They got all the Big Ten big boys on the back half. However, until then, if you wanna feel free, be my guest to take some of those derivatives and take some of those prop bets on Nebraska early in the year, I think it could pay off big. All right, let's go now down to the SEC, shall we? Let's talk about mood trackers. Mood tracker is an idea, kind of a concept that I came up with a couple of years ago. And I came up with it, I thought out of necessity because I found that the way that a lot on the regional and national level thought about a fan base was born out of what they heard from the biggest mouths in those respective fan bases. The problem is, Your most vocal fans don't always represent the true sentiment of a vast majority of your fan base. So, I just talked about the 595 rule a second ago. Well, in mood tracker world, we have the 80-20 rule. What we wanna know in our mood tracker quest here, we wanna know, what's the temperature of the 80%? The 20% are the fringe minorities on the optimistic and pessimistic side of the spectrum. Take those off, okay? Cut both ends off the snake. Let's take the remaining 80%. That's the vast majority. They're usually a pretty silent majority. They're not, you know, posting 47 times on the message board every day. They're not lighting up the board on the call in shows, but yet they are a majority of your fan base. And so that's what we're going to do. We did it with the SEC West the other night. We're going to do it with the SEC East tonight. What I do is I basically just tell you in a sentence, sometimes in like a fragment of a sentence, where the 80% mentality, where their heart and their mind is right now. So let's start with Florida. With Florida, the current mood with them is, the time is now. I said the exact same thing for Texas A&M the other night. You could essentially make this Texas A&M's sister program for this year for mood tracker purposes in the SEC East. The time is now. No one has complained. There hasn't been much to complain about at Florida. They have been good. They were good as soon as Dan Mullen got there. You know the resume, a couple of back-to-back New Year Six Bowl wins. A lot has been good. Uh, they have lost to Georgia a couple times now, but it hasn't been in blowout fashion. They've been competitive. But now everything's sort of been building to this year. We've talked about this a number of times on the show. I'm not going to rehash it all, but the scheduling dynamics, the you know cross-division scheduling dynamics favor them over Georgia. Quarterback position, it looks like for the moment, and that's depending on what happens at Georgia, favors them over Georgia. They didn't have any turnover, or they had minimal turnover, we'll say on the coaching staff over the off season, both coordinators still in place. We can't say that for Georgia. So that gives people a lot of optimism. And it's also that a lot of people just were optimistic when they saw in a short sample size what Dan Mullen was able to do with Kyle Trask. I say all that to say this, every Florida fan or virtually every Florida fan I've spoken to expects to win the SEC East this year. Having said that, they're willing to reserve judgment, they're willing to reserve any criticism because they understand takes a little time. Okay, we weren't necessarily uh, Ohio State South. It wasn't Dan Mullen was gonna come in here and immediately take us to the playoff year one. Anything worthwhile, it takes a little time to build. So there have been some whispers. They wish that they were top five in recruiting. You know, they wish that offensively, maybe they looked a little better with Felipe Franks, but whatever, they haven't been loudly complaining. And they're still not, but the time is now. That is the collective sentiment. Because if they get out of that game in Jacksonville and their SEC Eastern Division hopes are dashed again, it won't be quite as pleasant. And to be honest with you, I don't even think they'll care if they're chalked in for another New Year's Six game. If it's a product of you know Alabama or Georgia just going to higher bowl games, so out of default they kind of get shoehorned into one. I don't think that that ends with the same sentiment this year. So it is show me time in a lot of ways for Florida Gator fans. Now as for Georgia, this is complicated. This one's really complicated because there are two different mood trackers that we have to follow parallel to each other. I'm from Georgia, I know you guys. Um, A couple of you I've spoken with today about this subject and to your credit, you both agreed with me with what I'm about to say. There's one road over here and that's the public road And But the public road for Georgia when it comes to Mood Tracker is what they say in public, what they say when they're around members of other fan bases. You know, if if you're an Auburn fan over here, you're a Florida guy, you're a Bama guy, and we go out to lunch and I'm a Georgia guy, I'm telling you I'm still fully confident. I'm telling you we've got a roster about as loaded as anyone else. You know, Bama, you're the only one other at the table besides me that could even compete with that moniker. And Kirby Smart's got us right on the precipice. We knocked on the door a couple of years ago. I mean, we're there every year. We keep swinging. Eventually, we're going to knock that thing down. And we're only continuing to improve our quarterback position. We've got Brock Vandergriff committed, that's a five-star kid. We've also got JT Daniels on campus. And if that's not bright enough, we've also got Jamie Newman, who we think will start for us this year. We just made the change at coordinator, the one thing that was holding us back. Now we're gonna take care of that. That's the public road. But then, when Georgia folks are amongst themselves, there's this little different tune. They're not negative, but there's this little different tune. And here's what they say. When they look over both shoulders and they know they're all alone and it's just Georgia folks in the room, what they say is, they lower their voice a little bit, and they lean in and they say, you know, uh, they don't give out trophies for recruiting. We can win all the recruiting championships that we want to. Eventually, we're gonna have to get over the hump on the field, and I know it's tough, and we're existing here, in an era where Alabama's on this unprecedented run, but someone's gonna knock them off, and it should be us. There's no reason that it can't be us. I mean, we've beaten them, according to 24-7 Sports. We've beaten them in recruiting a couple of times. Now, notice the voice is still low. We've made some very questionable, and by we, we mean our head coach. We've made some very questionable decisions in some very key moments in games. We have had control the last two times we played that team in Tuscaloosa and we let it get away because that's what we think. We Georgia fans, we think we let it get away. We think we offered those games up on silver platters. They didn't take it if we didn't give it to them. So having said all that, it's good that we made this move with Todd Munken coming in, it's good, but is this guy's Kirby Smart gonna fully commit to that? Or are we gonna sit here and watch us have the best defense in America this year and see it wasted? because we can't open it up enough offensively and we can't modernize enough offensively. Listen, recruiting classes are great, but that's how you talk when you're building towards something. We should be there. We should be at the something now. So those are very first world problems, but that's what Georgia fans talk about amongst themselves. Again, they think that they've got it all ahead of them. Both camps, the public and the private road, think that they have it all ahead of them, but when they're private, don't think for a second. You Georgia fans know what I'm talking about. Don't think for a second that they don't look around and say, hello, let's do it. Let's win it. Let's go. Let's get it done. As for Tennessee, different program right now. Okay. Different stratosphere. So the expectations, a little bit lower. Long-term, they're the same, but they're a little bit lower. I have uh, forever respect for the Tennessee fan base for showing patience with the last oh, it feels like 10 failed coaching experiments. Don't think that this one, the Jeremy Pruitt experiment, I think it'll be long-term. Don't think it'll be a failed experiment. So the fan base, the collective mood tracker, for the 80%, the majority, the silent majority of Tennessee fans is, they need a taste this year. They at least need a really, really nice appetizer. Now they would love if their meal arrived early but they don't wanna look at the menu anymore. They gotta get at least an appetizer. And that means, of course, beating one of Oklahoma, Florida, Alabama, or Georgia. They've gotta be competitive. There can't be any 49 to 10 setbacks. Now certainly, we're looking past the idea of another Georgia State debacle. Like we think we've got that rectified, we think we've got it figured out. Now we gotta run with the big boys and we gotta clip one of the big boys. We thought it happened in our first year with Jeremy Pruitt. We thought it happened when we went to Auburn, but that turned out to be a little bit of a mirage. Good win, but it turned out to be a little bit of a mirage, made us think that maybe we were a little bit closer uh, than we thought we were. We're not demanding the entire entree this year, but we just need, you know, bring us the Wisconsin cheese bites. Bring us the uh, potato wedges. Just give us something to eat this year. And then, this time next year, Then we'll be asking where the steak is. Just got to have a taste if you're Tennessee. South Carolina, uh, I I would argue we just went down the rung another step. South Carolina, right now, one of my favorite Rod Stewart songs is just reason to believe. Love the live version of it. Still, I look to find a reason to believe. That's what they want. They want to buy in. They don't want to be calling from Muschamp's head. They don't want another coaching change there no one wants to hit the reset button and start over but yet if you leave them no choice you leave them no choice so the reason to believe is hopefully for south carolina fans sake going to come in the form of mike bobo married to ryan Halinski, and married to a new strength and conditioning plan that keeps players on the field therefore we get to do more with those players and we push the right buttons and put those players in the right position, and offensively, we come out of this wasteland that we've been in, and we actually look like something. South Carolina football looks like something. When people describe us, whether they be in Sacramento, California, or Albany, New York, finally, we have an identity about ourselves. People actually have something that they have to have a little concern about Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. When they prepare for us, that hasn't been South Carolina. So the reason to believe that's what they got to have. Just give them a reason to believe. You don't have to go 10 and 2, but you can't go 4 and 8. You can't be missing a bowl game again. I don't know what the magic number is this year, especially considering all the external ramifications with COVID and decreased football revenue. But if it were a normal year, I got to think, got to be 8 and 4 or better. And I've got some Carolina folks that say it has to be nine wins. I don't know that I agree with that, but it certainly can't be miss a bowl game. And it doubly certainly can't be beat Georgia and still miss a bowl game. How, how, you know what? A hundred years from now, I'll still be trying to figure out how they figured out a way to go into Athens, Georgia and beat Georgia and still miss a bowl game. Georgia's supposed to be the reason that you do miss a bowl game. Oh man, that's, that's rough. All right, let's move on. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, Uh, Criticism comes in many different ways, and criticism all depends on what standard you hold a program to. So if, for instance, the Citadel went to the college football playoff and lost, I don't think anyone would shake a stick at that. I think it would uh, be a national holiday forever. But we're not talking about the Citadel in this segment. We're talking about Alabama. Alabama's defense last year was a shell of what it normally is. Uh, There were several reasons for that. I want to take you back. Just a little anecdotal example here, but I want to take you back. As a lot of other people are concerned about Alabama's defense, a lot of people, especially Alabama fans, questioning Pete Golding last year, that's the defensive coordinator there, and questioning not if but when he'll be fired, and then Nick Saban retained him. And it raised my eyebrow. I, I, I thought we probably were going to see a move too. So I was with you guys. I don't call for people's jobs. I told you that a couple of shows ago, but I thought that we were going to see a move there, and we didn't. And it, trust me, it wasn't because Saban didn't have options. He's the head coach at Alabama. They always have options there. But he didn't make a move. So the anecdote with Saban that I'm talking about is when we interviewed him, when I talked to him a little over a month, month and a half ago, I asked him about a couple of things that at the time had the fan base at Alabama pretty concerned. One was recruiting that was, that was like, it feels like a lifetime ago. That was when, uh, that was a time when Alabama was ranked in the 40s in recruiting. My, oh my, what a few weeks changes, huh? But I'm not talking about recruiting tonight. The second thing that I asked him about was Pete Golding. I pretty bluntly said, hey, a lot of people blamed Pete Golding last year. A lot of people, when they looked at the lack of defensive production, they really questioned Pete Golding and whether you had the pieces in place that you needed. So he did the same thing with both of these questions. The things that had a lot of people concerned, recruiting and Pete Golding, he kind of met with a collective shrug of the shoulders. Didn't faze him, he wasn't being sarcastic. It really wasn't a big deal to him. He had all the confidence in the world and then some that recruiting was gonna be every bit the same this year as it normally is. And I think since then we've seen things quickly fall into form and fall into place for them. But on the Golding front, his message and what he told me and what I've gathered internally there is they don't think it's a defensive coordinator problem at all. They didn't think it was any kind of schematic problem or play calling problem. His message was, when we did what we were supposed to do, the results were good, which sounds really commonsensical. But what he meant was, if I call a play and it's not executed right. Did I have the wrong play called? Or did we not execute it right? Of course, the latter is the answer. And that's what happens when you play a whole lot of young guys. They were crippled by injuries last year. I mean, losing Dylan Moses was like a sledgehammer to their face. It happened right before the first game of the season. And they also lost Josh McMillan. They lost both of their inside linebackers. And you couple that with the fact that they had some attrition to the NFL. And it was ooh, rough time for Alabama. First world problems again. But you know what they were like last year watching them? I was at several of their games, and they looked so lost at times, uh, including this LSU game you're watching. If you're watching on YouTube where I think they missed like 17 tackles, a lot of skill on that LSU team. I I don't know if it was quite that skilled. I think Alabama had a little bit to do with that. However, what they were like is if you go into Publix late at night, you go into the grocery store right before they're gonna close when they've put the new produce out for the next day, and you see the green bananas, that was what Alabama's defense was. It was like opening one of those green bananas. You know, you, you got to put some muscle in it to even peel those. And when you bite into it, uh, it, it doesn't taste like a banana. It kind of tastes like a battery actually, because it's not, it's not ripe yet. It's not ready to be eaten yet. Uh, Christian Harris and Shane Lee weren't ready to be on the field, much less calling plays. So we fast forward a year and, you know, it would it extended beyond there. LeBron Ray was gone. DJ Dale was out. And when he was in, he was hobbled at best in some of their big games. So this season, I say all that to say this. A lot of people doubting Alabama, relatively speaking. When I say doubting, I just mean doubting their ability to compete for a national championship. They do it because they don't think Bama's defense is what it used to be. And I think it's a year-by-year thing. I think defensively they'll be fine this year. And I think at the end of this year, The noise will have turned down considerably on Pete Golding. You know, I was looking at some of the projected depth charts that they have, just to give you an idea of the kind of depth they have. I was looking at some of the projections for what their starters depth-wise will look like on defense. I wrote down some names. You guys who follow recruiting remember all these names. Like, King Wakata is not a listed starter for them at linebacker at most places. That dude's going to play a whole lot. Probably play ahead of the guy that they have listed ahead of him in most publications. Uh, Christian Harris, you know, will probably be listed behind Josh McMillan. Christian Harris will be a star for them. Uh, make no mistake, he came on at times and flashed at times last year. Dude's just out there playing as a true freshman. Christian Barmore, I questioned why he wasn't on the field more last year probably going to be out of here after this year. Uh, That guy will be one of the best defensive players in the country this year, but I'm looking at names like Will Anderson, Drew Sanders, Chris Braswell, Tim Smith. Those are all true freshmen, by the way, that are not going to be listed as starters anywhere that will be big-time players, I think, for them this season. They've got really good depth. They're as athletic, probably, as they've been in several years in their front seven defensively, and Two staff changes that I just wanted to bring to your attention, one of which we've already brought to your attention that I want you to pay attention to when it comes to the production of Alabama's defense this year. One of them is Scott Cochran. Scott Cochran has moved on to Georgia in another capacity, in another role, and they got the duo from Indiana of Dr. Matt Ray and David Baloo I have spoken to a number of people at Alabama. They don't even wanna talk about football right now. They wanna skip right to the new strength and conditioning staff. The reason I mention that is because, really, at the end of the day, their purpose is to keep guys healthy, keep guys on the field. If they keep these cats on the field, Alabama will be as good as anyone in the country this year. I have no doubt they'll get quarterback figured out. I have no doubt whoever is playing quarterback for them will be a very solid option. But we're talking defensively here. Defensively, I think Alabama will look a whole lot more like Alabama. The second name that I wanted you to just bear in mind when we're talking about coaching staff. Hadn't heard this talked about a lot publicly. Suffice to say, I don't think they were very happy with their hire at defensive line last year. Brian Baker, don't think he was a good fit in retrospect. He's moved on. Freddie Roach, who played at Alabama, is now their defensive line coach. And just, I think there's a lot more synergy on that staff right now, especially at that position relative to the rest of the staff than there was last year. Just remember As we wrap this, just remember, that man, if you're watching on YouTube, Nick Saban, could have had his pick of dozens and dozens and dozens of candidates for defensive coordinator. He stuck with Pete Golding when he could have easily made a move. He didn't feel the need to make a move. And if you think for a second, this dude's just taking a chance or taking a flyer in a second go around on an unproven commodity that he doesn't fully believe in, you're crazy. He knows what he's got. We may not, but he knows what he's got. And secondly, imagine being Pete Golding. And I don't know whether you care about it or not, but imagine you got folks ripping you left and right, you pick up on that stuff, imagine all that, and then imagine your boss saying, nope, you're my guy. Imagine what that endorsement does. I don't think there's an emoji in an iPhone that fully expresses what that must make you feel like on the inside, and how much it makes you feel like running through a brick wall for that guy, the best, maybe in the history of the game, has told you, yeah, I don't really care that everyone else is criticizing you. You're good enough for me. If I'm good enough for Nick Saban, I don't really care about what Wayne from Wetumpka is saying about me. That's what I'm trying to say. But I love you, Wayne. All right, let's get to Q&A and let's get out of here. Uh, We had so many submissions for the Late Kick Extra podcast that, hey, I had to take another one, shave it off the top, and we'll just do it on the show here. This is from Seth, and he asks, If you could pick one formerly great program to return to that level, who would it be and why? So I was telling Colin, this was a coin flip for me. Uh, It was gonna be Florida State or Miami, that's who it was gonna be. And so I flipped a coin and it landed on Florida State. So I'm gonna pick Florida State, could just as easily be Miami, pretty much for the same reasons here. Number one, I love the brand of Florida State. Now the branding of Florida State, I love right on par with any program in America. I made it a point, I got to go down there a few years ago, when they played Clemson, that was Deshaun Watson's Clemson team, Uh, when they came into Doak and it was a close game. It was the only time I had ever been there. I was on the field for that game, great atmosphere. Um, Just, it feels old school. It doesn't feel like a more modernized stadium and that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. It feels, you know, it's very intimate, it's very intimidating, it is, I don't want to say dark, cause dark's not the word, but it's just it's not it's not nice and clean and sparkly like some new stadiums are. It's a place that it's you know ahead of time it's going to be hard to go in there and win. Well, not when it's halfway full because you're putting up a five and seven season, so you got to get them back in order to reestablish the brand. The second thing that this would accomplish or go a long way towards accomplishing is given a little competition to Clemson in the ACC. Ideally, you would get multiple programs that start to raise their collective game, but even if it's just Florida State, you know, even if I'm looking at a two-team race, a two-team race is still infinitely better than just this 12-week tune-up campaign that you have to get ready for the playoff. It's like you have um, an extended four-month-long workout session in order to get ready for the playoff, and if you think that's disrespectful to the ACC, go back and watch the ACC over the last few years. But the third thing this would accomplish, and to me, as I've told you many times, it's the most underreported big story in college football right now. Not by us, I mean, we cover it all the time, but just nationally, I don't see a lot of people picking up on the mass exodus of talent from South Florida in recruiting. And it's because, it's no mystery, uh, the Florida Gators do not have an elite recruiting staff. They got a good one, and they're a good program right now, so they're the most attractive option. But Florida State is very subpar, and they just made a change at coach, so it remains to be seen what that staff will do. And Miami's been very subpar for a long time, and they just made a coaching change a year ago. So it remains to be seen what that staff's going to do long term. But you don't have an option. If you're a kid from South Florida, you don't have an option currently, uh, anywhere within driving distance, being three hours being driving distance, of your home to go to if you want to know that you're going to be put in the best position to compete for championships and to maximize your future draft potential. That's not to say that you couldn't go to Miami and be a top 10 pick. That's not to say that. What place gives you a better percentage chance of achieving all that? Clemson, South Carolina, Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Columbus, Ohio, or Miami, Florida? Or Tallahassee, Florida right now. So the reason that I would pick either of these programs is because I'd love to see that change. I don't think people understand fully the dynamic shift in the sport of college football if even one more program in the state of Florida got their act together. That's eight to 12 major recruits per year that don't leave the state of Florida. You're not going to get all of them, but you're keeping eight to 12 or more major elite blue chip four and five star caliber players from going to other programs. Are they still going to get theirs? Yeah. But when you got a sport that at the top level, you know, think about Ohio State versus Clemson, the very top, the playoff caliber level, when those games are as close as they are, when the margins are as thin as they are, and you got eight to 12 kids, elite kids from the state of Florida, no longer leaving Florida. What if that's just one less first down for you? What if that's one less sack on fourth and four, you know, you never know what that could do and the ramifications it could have for the rest of the sport, not to mention what it could obviously do for Florida State or for Miami. So that's my wish. That's to quote Moonlight Graham from Field of Dreams. That's my wish. We'll see if it comes true. So uh, we appreciate you joining us tonight. We are still on the same schedule every Sunday night, every Thursday night, 8 Eastern, 7 Central. We will, of course, have the Late Kick Extra podcast this week. That comes up on Wednesday. You can submit your questions on the comment right below this video. You can submit it there. You can email me, joshpate706 at gmail.com. Hit me up on Twitter, at Late Kick Josh. Always ask that you follow me on Twitter. And always ask that you subscribe to the Late Kick podcast and leave us a five-star review. Many of you have done that. We hope many more will. Until Thursday night, for Director Colin, for Aaron, for Tani, I'm Josh Bate. Have a great and safe week, and God bless.